Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at The MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to another edition of the MyFit Podcast. I first want to start by saying thank you again to all of you that are listening to the show. This past month, this podcast has had more views and downloads than any other month. And I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen, be a part of the journey and share it with your friends and family. I truly wouldn't be here without you guys. So thank you for all that you guys do and for the continuous support. This week on the show, I interview Brett Ledbetter. Brett is a performance consultant, an author, and a speaker. He works with some of the best coaches and teams in professional and collegiate sports. He's the co-founder of What Drives Winning, which is a company that puts on conferences, keynotes, and seminars all over the United States. Brett has also done three TED Talks and has just recently released his new book titled What Drives Winning Environments. Being a major sports fan and a son of a motivational speaker, the ideas of character development, team dynamics, and behavior management are something that have always been fascinating to me. And in my opinion, Brett is leading the way on these subjects, and he has a very impressive client base to back that up. And if you guys have been following the show for the last couple of weeks, I've been talking a lot about what creates a winning environment. And I think I've been doing so because the book has had such an impact on me. And so I felt like in order to get um, more uh, realistic and a little bit more closer on the subject, I need to talk to the author himself. So I reached out and Brett was more than willing to be on the show. So we got through a lot of subjects within the 45 minutes. The first thing we talked about was his idea of character, process, and results. And that's what his main book is, which is uh, What Drives Winning. And he, he's a firm believer that in order to have a winning environment, have a winning team, have a winning culture. It first starts with character development. So character comes first, then process, and then the results will follow after, which led into next talking about what is character development. After that, we talked about the new book, Creating and Winning a Winning Environment. And the major points of that book are the best coaches and leaders and bosses, CEOs are able to define model, and manage expectations. And we broke each one of those three down and talked about some specific examples as well as what it looks like at the highest level. After that, we talked about coaching and motivating athletes that have different goals. We also talked about what's it like to coach people that are just not coachable or uncoachable. What are some tactics and things that we can do as coaches to help those people out? After that, we talked about how to use praise as a coach. When is a good time to use it? How can we use it? And how can we use it to our advantage as a coach? 
And then we ended talking about something that is pretty profound. It's the idea of finding perspective as a coach and an athlete. As you uh, increase in rankings as a coach, uh, Brett is working with people that are some of the best in the world, uh, people at the division one level and also the professional level. Being a coach is not only your job, but it can consume your life and turn into almost your identity. And Brett does a phenomenal job at framing and giving coaches more of a perspective on what they do and making it more of a look as this is my job. This is not who I am. And I think this outlook is not only healthy just for all individuals, but it also creates more longevity in the sport and prevents burnout. Like I said, Brett is somebody that I look up to in the space. Being a coach myself, I think if you guys listening are coaches or know a coach, this is a podcast episode conversation that would be great for them. I highly recommend checking out his four books under What Drives Winning. You can check those out at whatdriveswinning.com. So for the coaches out there, this episode is for you. I hope you enjoy it. Grab his book if you're interested in hearing more. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a rating, review, and refer it to a friend. Thank you guys for the continuous support. It means the world to me. I really appreciate it. Also, don't forget the main sponsor of the show is Legends Clothing Apparel. Uh, In my opinion, it's the best workout gear that you can find. If you want to save 15% on your order, type in MyFit15 at your checkout and you receive 15% off. All right. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation with Brett Ledbetter from What Drives Winning. Let's go. Mr. Brett. Ledbetter, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, man. I'm stoked to have you on the show today. How are you? Likewise. Thanks for your patience. Absolutely, man. I want to talk about all things what drives winning, but before we do, I think we need to lay the groundwork of what is what drives winning, how did it get started, uh, what, you know, what was the inception like? So I started a basketball academy, and we worked for, with 5th through 12th graders. And then I got connected with Becky Burley through one of my good buddies, Mark Dagnalt, who's now the head coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder. And she came up and observed us and on how we instructed, because the guy that made the whole thing happen was Daniel Coyle. I don't know if you ever read the book. The Town Code, right? That's right. Yep, I got it. I got it. Yep. (laughs) So he connected Becky with me. She started to look at how we taught footwork. Then we spent so much time in the, uh, what we called the film room, which was character development. She said, bring it to Florida. Then we started doing it with a couple of coaches there. One of them won a national championship. Then we started doing a collaboration with all the head coaches back when Billy Donovan was there. And then we essentially said, what if we do this on a national level and collaborate and then just figure out a way to break even? And it took off uh, on the conference level in a way that we never imagined. Mm, so cool, man. And it's such a powerful statement. The books are phenomenal. I really, I really enjoyed the What Drives Winning Environments, which is your newest one. And we're going to dive into that today. And the thing I really like about your stuff, Brad, is you really take the character process and then results. You're a fast-paced dude, man. I got to slow down I a little bit. I love it. <laughs> you, you go. You just go right to it. Let's Brett, do it. I know we're limited on time. I want to take advantage, and I'm also had a lot of caffeine, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, I got my coffee right here, man. <laughs> Cheers. So, character, process, results. Why is that so important, Brett? Jim Lair helped me understand that the best thing that Jim Lair taught me was how to repurpose sport to build character. We had a, a pretty good process in place with our basketball academy, and we realized that if people work the plan. They would get better. 
but they didn't work the plan for whatever reason. And it was a variety of reasons. And we realized that really what was happening on the human level was what was driving the process. And that's why we directed so much energy at trying to help build the performance and relational skills necessary to play at a high level. Mm-hmm. So the first first process is character, right? I think a lot of people, they have their own thoughts on character. It's kind of a buzzword. What, what does character development look like to Brett Ledbetter? Character development is developing who you are as a person. And when we ask coaches, what's the difference between character development and behavior management? Many coaches will say that character development is the long game. Behavior management is right now. And when we ask coaches, what's more important? Most will say character development, Mm -hmm. developing the long game. What we found is how you navigate the moments, especially the ones that catch you off guard, is where trust is earned and lost. And if you don't have trust, it's hard to shape the long-term trajectory of the people that you're leading. Mm -hmm. That's why we delved into what drives winning environments, which is essentially a behavior management system. In your, in your opinion, Brett, how do people lose and gain trust? Coaches specifically. I think that consistency and competence are two of the things that players at the highest level want. They want to know that you're the same dude or same female, regardless of situation. And so many people fluctuate. And when they fluctuate, they project anxiety sometimes onto players. And that puts them in a vulnerable spot. And then as far as competence, one of the questions that I love asking coaches recently is to what extent does the effort you put in with your team influence the outcome? Mm. And so many coaches jump in and say a really large percentage at first, and then they start to backtrack it and think about it. And they realize maybe they have less control than they thought they did. Mm -hmm. But really the competence, whatever influence you have on it, players appreciate raw competence. And championship coaches understand that the margin in that game is so low that their competence can swing outcomes. And the best players I've been around want coaches that put them in a position to be successful and don't take credit for it. Mm. Interesting. I thought it was also interesting in the book. You talked a lot about coaches that, yes, they're good coaches and yes, they're good with the X's and O's, but a lot of their uh, ideas and brilliance really comes from character development and things that have nothing to do with schemes. Tell me about why is that so important for athletes and coaches to kind of take home and use with their, their teams at home? If I was going to ask you, what's the most important thing a leader does to build an environment where people can do their best work? How would you answer that question? Um, To me, I want an environment from a coach that isn't going to come after me if I fail. It's a very welcoming environment. I think, uh, you know, I'm not not scared to throw a a bad pass or something like that. Um, That'd be the first thing. I just want an environment that is okay to fail, okay to make mistakes. That's what comes to my mind. So we asked coaches that question and really we themed out their answers. Mm -hmm. And really when you combine them all, it comes down to how they define, manage, and model their expectations as the leader. Mm -hmm. And defining is a proactive approach. It's whatever you expect, you articulate and help them understand the vision. Managing is reactive. So it's catching above the line behavior in a surgical way that leads to them repeating it and then managing and converting below the line behavior. 
The challenge with a lot of coaches is when their players go below the line, their responses are below the line. And so it's hard to ask what you're not modeling, which leads us to the last point. And one of my favorite questions to ask coaches is, as you observe assistants or other coaches, what are some of the most common mixed signals you see and have them list them out? And then you can see the incongruency that could undermine the trust necessary to your earlier question on how to shape their leaders. Mm, that's interesting. So define, manage, and model the expectations. Let's, let's take that apart here. So define the expectations. What does that look like in a, in a classroom? Is it a classroom setting? Is it before the season? Obviously, it's not in a game situation per se. What does defining the expectation look like? Tim Corbin, who has a classroom set up before every practice, I asked him, what it, the exact question? And he said, there's 250 to 300 division one coaches, meaning there's 250 to 300 different ways to do it. And he prefers to use a, a classroom to, to show visuals on how they do it. One of my favorite ways to think about it comes from PJ Fleck, who's at Minnesota. He has what he calls how university mm -hmm. where anything again, that is expected is going to be defined and they define how they're going to do things. Mm, interesting. I think that you could do that as a coach by watching film and just looking at everything from a standard perspective and a behavioral perspective. What is not meeting the level in which we're trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And then that can become your curriculum to start teaching players how to be. Mm -hmm. We're uh, in Minnesota, so we're PJ Fleck fans, go Gophers, and we've loved what he's been doing. So that, that's an awesome parallel, I think, too. And I think about some of the best football teams out there. You talk about like Bill Belichick teams. You know, you always know they never shoot themselves in the foot. They're very well coached. So that's a term that just kind of goes with that team, along with other teams. When somebody says that team is well coached, what, what comes to your mind? Raw competence. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? To me, it means that players know that they will be put in the best position mm -hmm. to succeed. Mm -hmm. And that is also, that's in a game, that's also outside the game too. Bill Belichick, if we're talking about him, this is a guy who is a seasoned vet. So mm -hmm. there's not a lot of things that are going to catch him off guard. And so think about the consistency. Like if I was going to ask you, what is Bill Belichick wearing in your <laughs> mind? You would yeah. say what? The, the, the sweatshirt with the sleeves cut off. <laughs> <laughs> so that shows you how consistent he is, and it speaks to their blue-collar approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. So we're defining the expectations and then managing the expectations. And I think in my mind, when I hear the man manage the expectations, that's more of what could be the in-the-game stuff, when chaos arises, when bad calls happen. Um, talk to me a little bit about what are managing the expectations look like. It could be in the game, like you said. And if we're looking at it purely from that, you want to audit a coach, just watch the percentage of time they move to the next play. Mm. So basketball is an emotional game of random events. And you could say the same thing about life and all the other sports. And so when you watch coaches, how they respond to those random events, again, there is so much credibility that can be earned there, but it could be how you handle a situation off the court. So you're in a space, maybe you're traveling and a player says something that catches you off guard and now you have to deal with it. That's managing mm -hmm. and being able to navigate those in a fluid way that feels consistent ultimately to what your core values are as a program. 
And in your book, you talked about how to acknowledge the above the line and below the line behavior. Could you teach my listeners about what that is? I was going to ask you a question. What is your philosophy on praise? Um, my philosophy on praise would be as a coach myself, and I don't know if this is right or wrong. I would like to get into this actually too, is I don't want to praise everything, but I also don't want to praise nothing as well or be the guy that's super hard to impress. So I kind of meet, try to meet that in the middle. Um, but when I do praise something, I want to make sure I'm praising something like effort or something that uh, they're going out of their way to do or something that an athlete is maybe not naturally good at. So in the fitness world, like they're not good at squatting and they put up a really good squat number. I really want to praise them for something that's outside of their comfort zone. Maybe that's more than what you were wanting from me, but. I love it. And I think that that, if you attach that to how I would develop leadership within a team, you attach it to a moment as opposed to a person. Because when you attach leadership to a moment, that moment is a, it's a finite period of time. And who is the leader? Whoever is doing it right in the moment. And when you attach it to the person, they can become vulnerable. It can create judgment within the locker room. All these different things can happen. But when it's in the moment, it's accessible to all. It kills the entitlement because it doesn't carry over. And lastly, there's going to be some people that follow in that moment. And there's going to be some people that lead and you have to learn how to do both. Mm-hmm. And so when you're doing that and you're calling out the things that are happening outside of that moment, you're drawing the attention to what led to the success. And that's the stuff that can be repeated. And if okay. you can attach that to what your core values are or your identity as a program, that puts it on steroids. Yeah, totally. I can, I can totally relate to that. You had, you had a, a comment in the book here that I wanted to talk about. It was from uh, Gino from, from Connecticut. And he talked about, the quote was, here's something to consider. Expectations without appreciation leads to a cold and entitled environment. I underlined this a couple of times because I thought it was, it was uh, profound. Talk to me about what that means to you and why is it so important? Why, why did it strike a nerve with you? Uh, it's, it struck with me because... I've been around coaches that are very cold and they don't appreciate some of those things. And, and it leads to, like I said, it leads to an entitled environment, at least to an environment where it's like, man, I don't know if coach is liking what I'm doing and it, and it creates kind of some confusion. So uh, I could, re- I related to it a lot, probably because some of my past. And I, you know, Gino, if you think about him, they had a parade after the first championship and they haven't had a parade since. And the thing that championship coaches will tell you is the first one is oftentimes the easiest to win Mm. because you can sneak up on people. Mm. And so when you think about what are all the things that happen after you win a championship, there's staff turnover, there's the disease of me, people start to overvalue their contribution and you're having to navigate all those different things on top of having a bullseye on your back. Mm. And so for you to continue to do it year in and year out, it gets easy for people to take take it for granted and you're thinking they're not appreciating all the hard work. And so how do you get past all of that? That to me is when you find the transcendent leader. Mm. It's someone that can be kind and not care about people what, or care about what people think. Those are really hard people to find because most people are kind to get mm. something in return. They want right. to be liked, Right. But the minute that person doesn't do that, that disrupts their internal state. Whereas a transcendent leader is kind to everyone because it's the essence of who they are. They're not trying to get anything from anyone. 
to get to that level requires some pain and understanding that people don't and will not understand what's going on. I have to be okay with that. I'm not going to let that contaminate my heart. Totally. Makes total sense. And then the below the line behavior, Brett, I think that's something that a lot of coaches are probably leaning in to hear about. How do you deal with that? And I'm sure you've talked to several different coaches that take it a lot of different ways. I'd like to also get your opinion on when you see like a coach on the sideline screaming at a player as you're sitting at home watching that. What what are your your thoughts when you see that? That would not work in the NBA. Yeah. (laughs) But you see it sometimes. I mean, what was it? The national championship game. I think you referred to this a couple of times with the Alabama kid um, getting reamed out and and you just, you know, at some places it works, some, some places it doesn't, but what are your thoughts on just generally punishment and treating below the line behavior? So the, that Alabama clip is great because there was a fight on the Alabama sidelines in 2018 in the national championship when they're playing against Georgia. And when I show that to coaches, I, I love to just hear their experience as they watch it because the player basically had an unsportsmanlike penalty for throwing a punch at the opponent, goes to the sideline, draws back and forth with the, an assistant. They start to go at it. Players have to separate them. So that's the context behind the clip. And when I showed it to a, a good friend of mine who's a thinking partner, his name's Bill Beswick. He's based in the UK. He had a great interpretation. He said, what I see there is a passionate player. But emotion has taken the wheel. And what we strive for is fire in the belly, which he had, but ice in the head. Mm. And so the goal in that moment is to get him back to ice in the head and de-escalate the moment to where he can get back to optimal state. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that in a championship game, that's a hell of a skill. Yeah, that's that's all eyes on you. And we know, and I think too, there's a difference between being emotional and being the emotional player. Everybody likes to be around people that are emotional and passionate and they care about the game, of course. But there's a fine line. And once the the team is affected by it, now we gotta now we gotta do something about it. And interestingly enough, you wouldn't expect it from a Nick Saban team per se, but the the cameras all went to the sideline. We were only watching the game for a little bit because we're like, you know, it really took away from it. So, uh, yeah, interesting. And they won that game. Of course. And the player played again. So I think it's important to understand that it doesn't have to be perfect if you're going to win a championship. Now, there is, you know, margins for error, and maybe they they can overcome it that way. But that also in that game, you have a freshman uh, replace a veteran in, in Tua and Jalen, which has been well-documented. And they handled that masterfully. Mm-hmm. So there's just so many, again, it's, a, it's an emotional game of random events and how you recalibrate people in the moment is a surgical skill. Totally. Not easy to do. And, the, and that kind of brings us to the model part of the uh, environment. So this comes from the coach. My favorite line probably in this whole book is if, if I want my team to be blank, I need to be blank. It was like so simple yet so profound. Talk to me about what modeling the expectation looks like. I'm going to ask you a question. Most common mixed signals you see from coaches are what? Mixed signals? So they say one thing, but they do the other. Yeah. So the first one that comes to my mind is like, if a coach pregame wants to say, you know, uh, stick to our game, let's do our thing. And then, um, you know, be calm, cool, and collected. We practice all this stuff. And then in the heat of the moment, he either changes, he or she changes his game plan, which was not a part of our game plan, and or becomes a little bit more stressed and chaotic in a way that he told us not to be. Those are those would be two things. So one that's X's and O's and one that's a little bit more personable. 
And if you're a player observing that, what are you thinking? I'm trying to figure out why we're not sticking with what he said pregame, number one, and then also maybe just trying to like follow his lead as best I can, but also being very confused at, at what our plan of attack here is. And that, that is exactly right. Confusion comes from mixed signals. And so the goal of that tool is to figure out what do you want your identity of your team to be? Mm-hmm. So when I ask you, what do you see with Bill Belichick in your head? You talk about the hoodie that's cut off. That's blue collar. There's all the mixed signals are eliminated in that scenario. Mm -hmm. It feels very cohesive. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what you see with championship coaches. Yeah. And and oddly enough, some of the, some of the stuff you talked about in the book was that when you model the expectations, not a lot of it, some of it is through their words and through their dialogue, but a lot of it too, is just the way they act. And I remember my college coach was a family man. He had his kids at practice every day and he, he just showed us how he was a part of a present part of his family. And without really even teaching us much about that stuff, we all kind of took that in and admired that about him. And a lot of us are better off because of that. And not once do we have any family lessons per se. So I think a a, a good point is, and feel free to piggyback on it, is a lot of it goes without actually discussing the topic. I, I want you to piggyback on it. When you read the Mark Fuse story about his players and the best lesson he learned, what were you thinking? What, remind me again the part of that. We asked the Gonzaga men's team, what is the best lesson you learned from Mark Few? That's right. Um, there, there's a ton. I had, I had a great college coach. I, I was able to play Division three football here in, in Minnesota. And I think a lot of it, the, one of the biggest things I took away from him was the attention to detail. And at the time, being 19, 20 years old, some of the stuff I was like, man, this guy is super anal and I can't believe we're doing exactly this and this. And it was, it was just the attention to detail was crazy. For right or wrong, it worked. We were a successful squad. And now I look back at it and I've taken that mentality in my life in athletics and in CrossFit and other things that I do. And that was something that he didn't discuss. Like, hey, we're a team that's going to be really, it just was the way we did things. And so that would probably be the main thing just off the top of my head that just paying attention to the smallest details. And it speaks that right there speaks the importance of modeling that most people catch with their eyes, not necessarily hear with their ears. Yeah. I want you to tell our listeners, because I think it's a super cool story and I forgot to bring it up on the define the expectations, but the Mike Krzyzewski story before the Olympics was super cool because it's something that not a lot of people I think hear about. They just hear about the dunks and all the cool things that happen in the Olympics, but tell the story about the setting the expectations before they took the floor as an Olympic team. Well, and that's, that's something that I see with a lot of great coaches is they set the standards before they even touch the ball. And that's what happened. And in the NBA, we all know that those players have the power. And so for him to come in and dictate how they're going to live, especially when it's philanthropic, and if LeBron walks in late and coach K says, you know, run a suicide, that's career suicide for him because it changed USA basketball. Like that's not happening. So his objective was how do I get everyone to contribute to this and own it? So he asked all the players to bring one standard that they would like to live by. Everyone did it. They came up with a list of standards. And I think what's so cool about that is really it leads us to discussion of what is the difference between a standard and a rule? And Tim Corbin has a great line about that. He said that rules are for people who can't follow instruction. Standards are for people that aspire to be more. Mm. And that's exactly what Coach K did. And what we've seen when you collaborate on team standards, 
people generally don't want to sink the boat that they're in. So when you increase their ownership, they drive it in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. And those were their words. So that you're saying that they had the buy-in. It, Mike didn't really, Coach Krzyzewski didn't really, he wasn't really a part of it. I mean, he guided the conversation, but that created a lot of buy-in. He was the facilitator. Yeah, very cool. Um, I think that's also something that would work really well with a corporate world, teams in, a, in any sort of a work environment too. It's not, it's not just sports. Um, something else I wanted to ask you too, Brett, was as a coach, especially a college coach, you're working with a lot of athletes that have a lot of different backgrounds, different bring-ups, different motivations. Some people are trying to go to a league. Some people are just trying to get their degree. How do you as a coach, talk to me a little bit about motivating different athletes with different goals and different upbringings. It seems like a very tough challenge to do. Can we talk a little bit about motivation? For me, I have always appreciated questions. Why guess when you can know? Mm-hmm. And the more you, you ask, the better you understand where they're coming from. And when you understand where they're coming from, you can connect that to the larger goal. And so I think questions are the best tool a coach can have. And it, it seems clunky and inefficient at first, but if you get good and surgical and targeted with it, what it does is it, it cr- creates a discussion. And it's a discussion about their development and where they want to go. Mm-hmm. And then you just figure out how what they want connects to the whole. And then you create larger buy-in for everybody. Totally. And so that, that would probably be something that would maybe get, be categorized in the define the expectations, kind of a preseason thing of not, not only let's get to know each other, it's much deeper than that. Maybe it's just a coach and an athlete. Just what do you want out of me? What, what can I do for you? And kind of creating that clarity, because I think you would agree too. every athlete gets motivated differently. And so if I'm coming at one person yelling at them or, 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 or just talking about, you're not going to make it to the league. If you do this, that might not ring a bell for somebody who's just trying to get a degree. Diversity brings strength. And the more we can learn from other people's experiences, the better off we all are. Mm-hmm. I heard a great line. The challenge is this, that <laughs> we, I'm going to read this line. It's a yes. good line. Just Please do. Okay. What you experience is more compelling than what you learn secondhand. Mm-hmm. What you experience is more compelling than what you learn secondhand. Mm-hmm. And so the, the balance you have to strike with define is there was a coach that said, I became a better teacher when I realized that sport and life were better teachers than me. He then became the person that would help interpret the experience and try and get the collective message to where we all agree on what just happened. So now they go to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think that the more coaches can look at themselves as facilitators and interpreters of experiences, it's anchored into a reality and it's creating a bigger story on how they're moving forward together. Why do you think that some people struggle to be coachable? For me personally, that's a really tough question because I think I'm going to think about the most difficult person that's coachable. How about that? And I'm going to start from there. Yeah. Sometimes those people are very talented. And when they have a lot of talent and they've continued to climb up the ladder, the things that are holding them back are what got them there. Mm. 
So you're asking them to abandon all the things that they've been positively reinforced throughout their life to find their next level. And anchoring into the unknown when you have this huge body of evidence that my way works right. is really challenging. And so especially when they can hide behind their performances mm-hmm. and especially when their performances are garnering the attention that promote self-interest over team. Because if they get triple doubles, for example, guys can know that they're hunting the triple double. So maybe they'll play into that. So he needs to assist. We're not going to sag and he's going to hunt the assist. And now that's not what's best for the team, but it's, what's going to get him the spot on sports center because he's got this streak or whatever it is. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Those become very difficult scenarios to navigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd imagine that's a, that's a tough task. And, and something that, again, I think it comes back to having clarity, having conversation with, how can I help you? What are you here for? And just having that direct line of communication between coach and athlete. I mean, really, a lot of the stuff probably comes back to, like you said, asking the right questions and asking several questions. You know, and it's so hard because, like, I'm going to give you an example. There was a player that hit a, a big shot this year. He was tweeted about almost as much as Jesus was on Easter Sunday. And so think about the noise that surrounds that scenario. And so you have to learn how to navigate those things because that's happening all the time. And that's a shot of heroin to the bloodstream. And it's very easy to get high on that stuff. And when you're high, you're not making rational decisions. And for the coach to say, hey, you're high, we need you to come back down so we can recalibrate. Um, Just imagine yourself in a party and having someone say that to you, what the response would be. And so that's, those are the scenarios I most enjoy because there's no clear-cut answers. It's all gray area. There's no playbook on how to handle it. But what you learn going through that situation is priceless and hard to articulate because it's almost like, again, you have to go through it to understand it. Like, I'll, I'll give you exactly what it's like. Ready for this? Yep. That's why I don't do a lot of these podcasts, DJ. But if I was going to ask you to explain the color green to someone that has never seen before and is blind, how would you do that? God, I don't know. My first thought was something with grass, but if they've never seen before, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Try it. let's, uh, Let's tease it out. Oh man. So somebody that's never seen before, what does green look like? Man. Um, I would say something like, uh, dark, a little bit, a little bit dark and color. You don't know the color of a tree, but it's the color of a tree. And, um, Brett, I'm failing you, man. I don't know what the heck I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's beautiful is your listeners could interpret what you just said in a thousand different ways. Right. And that's what those scenarios are. So to condense it and simplify it and say, here's how you would navigate that, you know how contextual things are. Right. That sometimes, and that's really when you start to realize that the answers are inside and that you're an expert in your own situation, I think that's when you empower yourself to trust your instincts. Mm. 
That's powerful, Brett. I like that. That's gold, man. Uh, something else that I really like when you talk about, I don't know if it was on a TED Talk or um, on stage, but you talked about having perspective. And this is something that I think is, it can get carried away for coaches, especially at the top, even players too. How do you create better perspective for coaches and athletes that are high performers? You know, it's interesting. A lot of the people that I've worked with have achieved everything the world has to offer. And they understand once you achieve it, the value that it holds, Mm -hmm. which is not what we think it is. Interesting. And so once you understand that, and then you see everyone around you chasing so hard to achieve this thing that really doesn't hold as much value as they think, it puts people in a confusing state. Mm -hmm. And that confusing state helps lead to understanding. And so for me personally, it's just trying to understand and help people understand with them because I don't have the answers. Let's be very clear on that. Uh, what is the real value of things? And when you start to understand the real value, the temptation for those things starts to drop because you realize that they're not really bringing anything of substance to your life. Totally. And I, and I love that. I think it was in the book. I don't know. I've been doing so much research on you. I don't know where I got it, but it was just a lot, two lines of the things that it was like you could control or what other people can control about you and then your values. And then we kind of took those two and we've in it, those two lines were, or the two ideas were so separate. Can you enlighten our listeners about those two items? So one, the, the left column would be how does society measure your success? And so as a coach, DJ, how would you answer that in your current situation? Um, So I would say like the success of my athletes, it would be how I would be graded on success in in like a CrossFit world. So I would say like in a sports world, it's, it's by my record, by my wins. Championships, rankings, players at next level, you create that long list, right? Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, what we ask is write down one to 10 answer to this question. What's important to you about life in general? It doesn't have to be in any order. Just first things that come to your mind and they write the 10 down. And then we ask them to prioritize their top five. And when they do that, and then they stack it out up to what society values, they see that there's a huge difference. And that begins to help them understand that if they are going to be reinforced by society, then that's what they're going to be chasing. And it takes a certain internal fabric to line up against that. And one of my favorite stories around this is I was walking with Mike Gundy, who's a football coach at Oklahoma State. And they walk from the hotel to the stadium. People line up the streets. And I saw grown men on their knees bowing towards him as he walked by. And it, for whatever reason, it was seared into my brain. Yeah. And a couple of days later, I saw Bob Stoops, who was having a statue built for him. And I asked him, how did you deal with all the adulation that came with your position? And he had a very profound answer. He said, you realize that it's the same men that hung Jesus. Wow. And that hit my core. And I think once you start to build a filter that what people praise and criticize says more about them than it does you. And when you become to understand that, it has less impact on you. Hmm. So profound. And as a young coach or at any age, you could see how 
you can lose perspective pretty quickly, I think. And because the, sometimes the praise takes over, right? You're feeling good. You're on a high. You're coming off a national championship. You're the best. And, and people just want more and more out of you. I could just imagine some coaches that are really lose sight of that. And by the time their career of coaching is over, they're kind of stuck by themselves in a room full of trophies or maybe not full of trophies wondering, what the hell do I do now? The question you have to ask yourself is, what would make a recovering alcoholic not drink when they go into the bar? How would you answer that? With a water? Have them have them have them have a water in their hands so they don't get thirsty. I don't know. <laughs> and so let's say they have the water, and then all these people that are coming up having a blast, scream, and they're handing them drinks. Yeah. What would prevent them from taking the drink? Um, having a higher standard, having different friends, I think would would be a, another idea. Um, I don't know what else. Well, it, it's a great thing to think about as a mm-hmm. coach. And I would encourage everyone to, because um, there is no clear cut answer. There's many different answers that I've heard from coaches, all very interesting. I think for me personally, when you walk into that bar and you see everyone having a great time with the drinks in their hand, they're all drunk. Mm-hmm. And so if you drink, they're going to applaud. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're part of the party, right? What I think would be so interesting is to put all those people that are blasted in a room together the next morning and have someone walk into that room with no context. They would be like, what is going on? (laughs) And then you could understand the consequence of the night before. Mm -hmm. What's televised is the celebration. So we think that that's what it's going to bring our lives. What is not televised is the collateral damage and the hangover that comes from that. Very cool. I got two final questions when we wrap it up here. Um, so in your book, you have a lot of stories and conversations with some of the best coaches in the world. I'm curious, looking back on your career thus far, Brett, is there a conversation or a phrase or something that you've learned from a coach that has been the most impactful or one of the most impactful things in your life and in your presentation and keynotes? This is not politically correct, DJ, because if I asked you who's your favorite guest that puts you in a bind... You are. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because it's right now. And I have folders in my head of all the people that I've interviewed. And I can tell you that if if you ask me about a specific individual, I could click on that folder. And there's a number of thoughts that that person has given me that have shaped the the trajectory of how I think. Very cool. How about your mentor, Dr. Jim Lair? I think one of the, the quote I just love and, I, and I've got it in my office, just like uh, Becky does, is who you become as a result of the chase is the most important thing. Is there something that maybe you've learned from him that's been really impactful other than that statement, or maybe it is that statement? It's that statement. It's repurposing sport to build character. And the, the quote that I talk about in the book, it's serendipitous because it was the first uh, line at our conference our very first conference, he said, how important do you think it is to know the reason behind why you're doing something? Dude, and that's, it's really that's so powerful. Past that, but if you, if you sit back and think that's the level of intentionality that you have to have, if you're going to go into that bar, bringing it all full circle and not take the drink. Do you think a lot of athletes and coaches haven't ever thought about that question before? And it's like, almost fearful because it's like, I've been doing this for a while. I don't want to think about that. 
<laughs> you know, it's a, it's a deep thinking. You got to sit in that. I hadn't. And maybe I thought I had. But getting around Jim and understanding the level of intentionality through his questions, that helped me understand that there is another level. And I think that that's what's so cool about running into an incredible coach is they can help access parts of you that you didn't know existed. Now, if you're an insecure as an individual, sometimes you don't want to go on that journey. But the most secure individuals that I've been around, they thirst for that. Show me something about myself that I don't know. Totally. Yeah. Great point. There's a gym, a uh, very famous CrossFit gym, CrossFit New England. Ben Bergeron's the coach there and he's done a couple of TED Talks as well. But on his wall, it's plastered. It says better people make better athletes. And he's referenced you on a couple of podcasts. And I think he kind of got that from you in some way or another. But what a, what a great quote, right? Better people make better athletes. If you are you know, disciplined and you do the things outside of the gym, chances are you're going to be a good athlete inside the gym. It's hard to go the opposite way. It's a foundational belief on development for me. In fact, I just, a coach sent me an article today about an NBA coach. And he said that he believes his job is to be a shepherd of incremental growth. Mm, that's, that's, that's awesome. I think the other interesting thing to put it back to the beginning was they, the coaches see the uh, value in the character development and that's long-term yet some of these college coaches are only getting these kids for a year or two, but they understand it's, it's, it needs to be longer than just, I got you right now. And then I'm never going to see you again, especially with like the one and dones and in the, in the uh, NCAA, right? College coaches are constantly put in the dilemma of short-term yeah. versus long-term. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Very cool. Last question I ask all my guests, Brett. Uh, if, if you were to give advice to an 18-year-old kid who wants to be in your shoes someday, what would you tell that 18-year-old kid? I don't know about telling. I, I would not tell him to follow me. I would, if I had to give an advice to an 18-year-old kid, I would say, buy the book, The Way to Love by Anthony DeMello writing that one down. Awesome. How uh, can I have my listeners support you and uh, see kind of what you guys are doing? Obviously get the book. It's an amazing book. This one just came out, but what are other ways that people can see what's up with um, What Drives Winning? Whatdriveswinning.com. We have free videos there. We have books there. We have information about our coaching lab, which is a live group that meets twice a month. Very cool. Brett, thanks for taking the time, man. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking about all things character development and, and what drives winning. Thanks for stopping by, man. Thanks for having me, DJ.